0: you guys to turn to the book of lamentations this morning lamentations uh you know, best way to find it, if you don't know where it is, would be to go to your table of contents. Because it's not very long, and it's kind of obscure, and you probably don't know where it is, do you? I mean, let's just be honest. Most of us probably don't, without a little help. If you look in the beginning, of the, at, the, at the, the, the start to your Bible, you'll find a table of contents uh, that'll lead you to this, to this ancient, beautiful book that we're going to start considering together this morning. And, I, and, and, and as you're looking, uh, just in case you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. We've provided Bibles at the center of each aisle. You can flag somebody down sitting on the edge. They'll pass one down to you. Please take it. We'd love for you to have it and to read it and then to talk to us about what you find there. Uh, what If you're visiting with us this morning, I want you to know that we've been, for the last several weeks, uh, walking together through a genre of the Bible that's known as lament. It's a genre that, that's scattered throughout the Scriptures, but we've been looking at some particular psalms that are prayers uttering great sorrow to God and asking God to act on behalf of His people who have nowhere else to turn. We've been using these psalms to try to introduce the main steps that lament takes so that we can take them and use them for ourselves because these aren't just relics of another time and place. These are prayers that we need now. We need them because our lives will know sorrow and because our friends' lives will know sorrow and God has left us with these these precious tools in the scriptures so that we could use them. We've been trying to learn that together the last few weeks and I just refer you to the sermons we've preached trying to unpack those steps over the last few weeks that are on our website Today we take a turn that'll carry us through to the end of the series. The next five weeks, every Sunday in July, we're going to be looking at an, at a book called Lamentations. And on the one hand, I am thrilled to introduce you to this book. I'm thrilled because it is it is a collection of ancient poems that together stand as a truly incredible work of art. One of the great pieces of literature that survive today. On the other hand, given the origins of this book, given the, the experiences behind it, the feelings that come through it, I'm also feeling the, the impossibility of talking about this text in a way that does justice to it. I'll never forget uh, where I was on 9-11, September 11th, when, when America was attacked by terrorists who took out buildings in New York City and in Washington, D.C., probably most of you also will remember where you were that day. I remember that I got to a TV. Uh, I, was, I was in college at the time. I was leaving one class, headed to a car to go to another one. Somebody flagged me down, told me that we were under attack. I remember it. I remember that, remember that conversation out in the parking lot. I remember going into the common area of the building I had just left. There was a TV in there and a bunch of people huddled around it. I got to the TV just after the second tower was hit, just before both towers fell. So I watched it, like, live, as those towers came down. And I remember feeling bad for the broadcaster, among all the other conflicting feelings that I had, because this guy had to say words about what was happening. I remember him stumbling around, trying to figure out what to say. You're watching in real time, a symbol of our national life collapsing. You're seeing the success of an enemy who didn't deserve to be happy right then. And whatever else you're feeling, you're also, you know, as you watch those towers fall, you're watching people die. I remember the broadcaster trying to put words to that as the tower is in motion, headed for the ground. Him believing that by that point in the day it would have been full To capacity. Thankfully, it wasn't. Trying to describe the idea, the the unthinkable horror that towers full of innocent people could fall. In some small way, I think that's what the writer in Lamentations is expressing, trying to do, to put words to something. And that's the job of preachers on Lamentations. An impossible job to stand in front of a landscape of absolute devastation, of death and destruction, of an unthinkable scale, and to talk about it. We don't know who wrote this book. Uh, the, Jeremiah is the traditional answer. That's what people have been saying for a long time. The book doesn't say. It doesn't need to be Jeremiah. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. We don't know who wrote it, but, but we do know that this is a set of poems that's born out of the... Great tragedy, the tragedy in the life of Israel. A life, a history full of tragedies. This book comes from the defining tragedy of their life. An event that for them was unimaginable and from which the nation of Israel has never actually recovered. The book was born out of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in the year 587 B.C., You can read about this in other parts of the scriptures. 2 Kings in particular tells this story. The background is also in the prophet Jeremiah who warned Israel and her leaders that if they continued worshiping other gods, if they continued to behave like worshipers of those gods behave towards one another, abusing their power, abusing anyone they were powerful enough to abuse, if they continued in their flirtations, their trust in political alliances abroad, if they continued the way they were going, that they would lose what God had given them. The Assyrian Empire collapsed. One of the great empires of the world, relics of of that empire still fill museums all over the world. Maybe you've even seen it, some for yourself, or remember it from from your Western Civ classes. The Assyrian Empire was great, had conquered part of Israel at one time, but then it collapsed, and in the power vacuum, Babylon rises to the top. In the meantime, Israel is right in the middle of this contest of empires. Egypt wants to take some power. Assyria is trying to hold on to power. Babylon is coming up, trying to express its newfound power. And Israel's right in the middle, kind of like a pawn in somebody else's chess game, moved around at will. When Babylon crushes Assyria and Egypt, Israel, initially, now called the Kingdom of Judah, tries to resist. So King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come in and put down their rebellion quickly and easily and and take back some of their best and brightest. So Daniel, the prophet, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are some names of the best and brightest who after that first defeat were taken back to Babylon. But, But Nebuchadnezzar left them some independence, at least a little bit. He puts a puppet king on the throne of Judah in Jerusalem and sort of plays with him for the next 10 years. But eventually... Judah rebels again and this time Nebuchadnezzar's had enough he comes back to finish the job that he started and marches on a path of destruction through Israel all the way to Jerusalem when he reaches Jerusalem he puts the city under siege for 18 months it was a common way of bringing a city to heal in the ancient times when you had walls that protected the city and made it hard to get to it you just set up shop around those walls and cut off food supply. The city had no other hope, no other recourse, but to last as long as they could to wait and watch as they began to die of starvation. You can read for yourself in Second Kings what kind of level, what, what low point Israel got to during that siege when, when parents were even eating their own children. Unthinkable horror that they lived through until finally the wall was breached. The Babylonian army entered the city and they turned it to rubble. They went house to house, killing, pillaging, destroying, burning. They destroyed its beautiful, uh, beautiful buildings. They destroyed its palaces. And they even destroyed the jewel of the city, its most prized possession, the Temple of Solomon. They come to the temple defiling it pillaging all of its treasures and then leaving it burning nothing more than a, whatever stones lay piled on top of one another after the fire was done the history of this moment comes in 2nd Kings 25 it's possible to read that history though friends and remain detached that's, that's kind of how it reads just facts It's valuable history. It tells us what happened and it tells us something about why it happened. But but both because of the way that account reads and because it's so old and because the account makes it clear Israel deserved to be punished by God, sometimes we can read that story and feel nothing. As if this was just cause and effect. But this is a history that's lived by humans. It's human history. The people who live through it are just like you, just like me. They felt what we feel. If all we had was the story that's told in 2 Kings, we might struggle to connect with these people and what they went through. But God didn't leave us just with that account. He supplemented it. He gave us Lamentations. He gave us the gift of poetry. Because as one person put it, through, through the history accounts, we, we think in order to understand Through these poetic descriptions, we feel in order to understand. Lamentations tells us what it felt like to watch the city destroyed and all of its people shipped off to the lands beyond what God had promised them. Even the structure of these poems speaks to this desire to kind of organize what happened here and bring some order out of the chaos there's five poems, there's five chapters. Each one is a standalone poem, and they're shaped based around the Hebrew alphabet. It had 22 letters. Each one is built around that uh, 22 verses. And almost all of the poems are acrostics, where the first verse the line of it starts with the first verse in the Hebrew alphabet and the second verse starts with the, the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet and so on until you get to the end. And what, what scholars point to that, that helped me is that this is this poetic device they're using to try to organize something, I mean, to, to try to, to, to grasp at something you can hold on to and understand in the midst of unthinkable and unimaginable suffering. These poems aren't systematic. They aren't linear in how they work through their themes. They don't build some sort of argument. They're not like that. They're poems. What they are, and what we're going to try to let come through them, is an expression of of anguish, a plea for somebody to pay attention, to see it and confirm that it's happening. And and what I want to do this morning is use the first poem, Lamentations chapter 1 to try to introduce not just what's in that first poem, but some themes we're going to see come up over and over again as we work through the rest of the poems. And then, and then oh, each, each Sunday between now and the end of the month, we'll take a poem uh, each week and try to hear from that poem uh, what this suffering felt like, and even more, what our suffering feels like, and what it would look like to be with one another and for one another in it. I want to, this morning, as we're walking through this poem, I want to help you see three things that come out in this poem that are going to come out even more as we move through Lamentations. Three things that this this book helps us to understand about unimaginable suffering. I'm going to begin by reading all 22 verses of chapter 1. I want you to listen as I read for two separate voices. There's the voice that begins. It's the voice of a narrator or a poet who's describing something that he sees. That carries on from verse 1 to verse 11. Then in verse 12, we hear the voice of the city, personified as a woman in anguish, crying out over what's happening to her. That, verse picked, or that voice picks up at the very end of verse 11 and carries through to the end of the poem. Now, would you stand with me in honor of God's word while I read? This is the word of the Lord. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she's become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none comes to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her for they've seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord has inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire. Into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He's left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He's caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden, as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My my children are desolate, for the enemies prevail. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word, but... But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I'm in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves In the house, it's like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They're glad that you've done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you. Deal with them as you've dealt with me because of my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. This is God's word. You can be seated. Three things quickly that I want to show you from this chapter that are going to come up later in the book. Three things Lamentations helps us understand about unimaginable suffering and what it is to press through it together. Here's the first one. This chapter in this book helps us to understand in a unique way the pain of loss. I think you'll see that that the poet here is giving a voice to something that is very specific, something concrete, that they experienced, that that we haven't. It is theirs. It's part of their history. But that what they experience resonates with what other people feel when they've lost something they love. The title for this book in the Hebrew Bible comes from the first word of the book, which we translate, how? How? How lonely sits the city. How like a widow she's become. That's the title of the book. So think about how. As I've put it here, it's the title of this sermon with a question mark and an exclamation point. It's unthinkable. How has this happened? What in the world? It expresses disorientation. Someone who's experienced something they just can't understand or make sense out of. And the unique pain of loss that comes through beautifully in this, in this poem looks like disorientation it looks like experiencing something you don't have categories for it looks like living now in a new reality that you can't understand where what was taken for granted and precious to you is now gone somewhere somehow here's another way to put it the the main thing that comes through this poem and that will come up again often throughout the book is reversal reversal A contrast between what was and what is. Did you see how often the poet uses that device to help us connect with what's happening? Look at verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. A contrast between what is and what was. How like a widow she's become who was great among the nations. She who was princess has now become a slave. You see what he's doing? He's bringing you into what loss feels like. Helping you see that loss is always, especially this sort of loss, this deep loss at the core of who you were and what you expected about the world feels like a disorientation where your heart is still attached to what was and you can't get over now what, what is. He continues to unpack this thing. Look at verse 6. comes up again. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. She was majestic. Now she's not. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. So think, before they were strong, now they're scrawny. They fled without strength, where before they could have stood to fight, now they can't even run successfully. But they're mown down. And verse 7 is the best example of this theme. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. You see that? Jerusalem remembering in her sorrow what used to be. All the precious things that God had given her, that gave her her identity, her sense of herself. So sure, that involved things that were gold or silver. It involved some, some precious objects in that sense. But, but far more than that, Israel's remembering her status as God's people, valued, looked up to, honored, among the nations that she lived with. She's remembering the treasure that was her law, the treasure that was her king, the treasure that was her temple and her sacrifices, her oneness, her closeness to God. She's remembering all the things that were, looking around the city that's now rubble, and one by one, these treasures are now all gone. And she sits... In her pain, thinking back on what she had, and memory has become her enemy. I think you can see, surely, that this pain, this gap between what was and what is, between what you had but now have lost is certainly unique to Israel's situation at one, at one level. We're talking about something that happened in history, but at another level is, is exactly the same as the pain of loss that we experience, where what we have now is made all the more bitter and when we think about what we had then. This shows up in all sorts of losses. could be a job and you think about how productive you were how suited you were for the job that you had how much joy you had in it and now you don't have it and you're thinking how? it could be the the loss of a healthy body (laughs) you know as your body ages you think back on what you used to be able to do I used to run that fast and now my knees just won't work anymore and one of the reasons I'm intentionally out of shape is that it'll make the pain of loss easier to cope with one day I don't have this, this sort of glory days to think about. But, but many people do. They, they, you, you, you struggle to enjoy even what you have left because you're thinking about what your body used to be able to do when it worked, right? Sometimes it's the loss of a dream. A dream that's precious to you. A future that you've imagined you're working towards. It gives you a sense of direction. A sense of purpose. It orients you in your life. And what it feels like to see it crushed, and to know that there's no rebuilding it. And you think to yourself, how? And of course the loss of people, precious to you, is the best example of all, isn't it? People that you depend on. People that help you know who you are. People that are pillars in your life when they're gone. The pain of that loss is directly tied to the sweetness of what you had. And you sit in your affliction, Remembering. Dante in his Inferno has this incredible line. Something like, there is no greater grief than happiness remembered in times of sorrow. He was scooped on that one by Lamentations like 2,000 years earlier. That's what gives loss its unique pain. This contrast between what was and what is. It turns even the best of experiences, even the most precious of treasures, into painful memories. And the more precious it was when you had it, the more painful it is when you don't. And if you haven't experienced this yet, friends, you will. Because we live in time, and time does this to everything. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a powerful book called A Grief Observed, grappling with the after effects of the death of his wife. And he talks in this book about, there's just one passage where he talks about how people try to encourage him. They try to tell him to, to, to remember that she's in a better place, or they, they try to tell him that, you know, at least she's not suffering anymore, or that you'll move on. He's not having it. He's not buying any of it. Listen to what he says. He says, you tell me she goes on, but my heart and body are crying out, come back. Come back but I know it's impossible I know the thing I want is exactly the thing I can never get the old life the jokes the drinks the arguments the love making the tiny heartbreaking, commonplace on any view whatever to say she is dead is to say all that is gone part of the past and the past is the past and that's what time means and time itself is one more name for death friends you will experience that at some point loss, irretrievable, and when you do you'll see in a new and a deeper way what a gift it is to have this unique pain represented in the Bible given voice words that you can use for yourself you'll also understand why a second theme comes up in this chapter not just the unique pain of loss that comes up here this reversal, this contrast between what, what is and what was that's going to come up later too but there's another theme And when you've experienced the pain of loss, you'll understand even more why this second thing comes up so much. That thing is the importance of a witness. In lockstep with this grief of no more that comes up over and over in chapter one, I wonder if you noticed how often the poet says that she had no one to comfort her. It comes up over and over, both in the first half of it, where the, the guy just observing what's going on, for example, verse two, she has none to comfort her. But also in, the, in the, the, the words of the woman who's expressing what she feels as she sees her life turn to rubble. She looks around for help for anyone who can comfort her and there is no one. No one to, to speak any words that change this reality. They heard my groaning, she says in verse 21, yet there is no one to comfort me. Now this lack of a comforter, some of that is because Israel's been abandoned intentionally as part of God's judgment. That's a theme in limitations we're going to, we're going to hit hard and directly, especially next week in chapter two. But, but there's another reason. It's also, there's another reason that there's no comforter. And I think it's the reason she's not really even asking for one. When you've experienced this kind of loss, where something precious is gone now and isn't coming back, what could anybody say to change that? The nature of loss is that there is no comfort to be found. Not from someone who can't restore anything. Because anything they might say to try to comfort you is really just going to be trying to chop down the size, the beauty, the power, the goodness of what's gone. Well, at least you had it for as long as you had it. The well at least, the silver linings, the think about it this way's, they just can't measure up to the to the pain of loss. This poem understands it. That's why there's no comforter, no comforter, no comforter. Instead of that, instead of crying out for a comforter, what this sufferer asks for is a witness. Look how often this theme comes out. Verse nine: Lord, behold my affliction; see it. Verse eleven. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Verse 12, turning from the Lord to the people who pass by here. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Do you not see what I'm dealing with? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow. Verse verse 18, again to all peoples. Yes, the Lord is in the right. I have rebelled against his word. She's not disputing that this was just. But still she wants people to see it here. Here. She says, all you peoples, and see my suffering. Look what's happened to me. And then verse 20, back to the Lord again. Look, oh Lord, I'm in distress. See, This is is someone who knows that, that they deserve what they're getting. They know that it's coming from the Lord and are still begging with the Lord to see it and begging for other people to see it, despite the shame in it. That's how deeply this desire for someone to see and confirm the pain is in those who are experiencing loss like this. Over and over again, in this poem and in the ones to come, the sufferer begs for this witness to confirm that her pain is real. She's not crazy. It really is terrible. Again, like the, the Lord did this. This chapter's clear about that. Next chapter's gonna be even more clear about that. But notice the fact that that doesn't change what she wants. At some level, when you're suffering, the, the causes for it don't even come into what you need in that moment and what, and what others should be willing to give you. Think of the book here like a memorial. That's an image that comes up in a couple of the writings I've been using to, to, to help get my mind around it. They've described it as a kind of memorial that stands as a testimony begging for others to see that this thing happened, that it matters, that, the, that, that this is what the world is. It's like this. A memorial, for whatever else it does, puts something in front of you and asks you to look at it. It asks you to account for it. To take what this is into your understanding of what the world is like. And Lamentations, as a memorial, asks us to bear witness to the brokenness of everything. sufferers need people who see their pain who acknowledge it and share it you know, I, I mentioned that that the pain that comes through lamentations over and over again is this unique pain of loss right? the contrast between what was and what is now and that there's really no comfort that bridges that gap that, that there's a disorientation that comes where you don't really know which way is up because what you took for granted is now gone and, and even if there's no comfort that can bridge that gap I think what this chapter and what this book is going to point us to is that at least in part, we can be reoriented through a friend who sees what we're going through. If not fully, the presence of a witness can at least show us that what we see is there, that this thing we're going through is real, that it's as terrible as it looks. Sometimes that's what you need. Somebody to confirm that you're not crazy. Someone who says, yeah, this is what you think it is and I can't do anything about it. Who admits that there's nothing that can bring back what time takes away or restore what you've thrown away or undo what's already been done. Simply bearing witness to the situation rather than trying to fix it, that's what lamentation's calls for, begs for. And it's one of the opportunities we hope to get better at through studying this book in our solidarity with each other. A kind of solidarity that, that is willing to see your own joy held in check because you're willing to bear witness to the pain of other people. That you're willing to walk around feeling something of their pain even though it keeps your joys in check. It's what it means to bear one another's burdens. It's a promise we make to each other when we join our church that we're gonna, we're gonna do as, we, as best we can. We're gonna do that together. I think given the way that the world is, any community needs to have celebrations that are always coming with an asterisk. There is much to rejoice in, much to celebrate, but it always comes with an asterisk. It always comes with a yes, but. Bearing witness to the pain that, that other people are going through is not easy for that reason. It, it, it costs you something. But it's a great gift that we can give one another and want to practice giving to one another through this series. It also leads, this this importance of a witness, not a comforter, a witness, leads to the third and final thing. I just want to put this seed, plant this seed in your mind before we close. A third thing that, that doesn't come up so much in chapter one, but that chapter one and chapter two are building to, a high point in the book Hope is not a major theme in Lamentations. It's not the note that you're going to hear most often. Painful despair is the note you'll hear most often. And and honestly, the book, um, yeah, it ends with that pain unresolved. It's, it, it's still there when you get to the end of chapter 5. There is no happy ending here. And, and we really do want to work hard to let that message land on us, to not shy away from it or try to bring it around to a happy ending too quickly. But... I want you to know, I want you to see this and we're going to come back to it in a couple of weeks that there is a shaft of light that comes breaking into the darkness of this book at the climactic moment of the book. Chapter 3 is different from the other chapters that are in the book. It's a different kind of poem. So it is still an acrostic. It still follows the letters of the Hebrew alphabet but it has 66 verses instead of 22. It's repeated. The pattern is repeated three times. In Hebrew, if you wanted to emphasize something, if you wanted like a strobe light that draws attention to something, that's what you do. You repeat it three times. Think Isaiah before the throne of God, Isaiah 6, crying out, holy, holy, holy. The angels that he sees around him, just their whole life is crying out, holy, holy, holy. It's repeated three times so that you notice it. Lamentations 3 is drawing in our attention. It's telling us, pay attention here. Something important happens here. At the middle of this chapter, flip over there. At the middle of chapter 3, which we'll talk about in detail in a couple of weeks, there's a crucial passage. Look at verse 19. The poet says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, that's for sure, and is bowed down within me. So here he is, doing what Lamentations is doing altogether, thinking about pain, looking at it clear-eyed, straightforwardly and not shrinking back. There is no minimizing what he's been through that happens here. He remembers it all continually. But, he says, this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. What? Did somebody finally show up with that word of comfort? Did somebody finally show them that it really isn't as bad as it looks? I know, nothing like that happens. What does he call to mind? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. In fact, they're new. (laughs) They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Friends, one writer, so importantly, says, we gotta take this verse off of the cross-stitched views of Gatlinburg, okay? With the nice rolling hills and, 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 and the, the fog rising with the morning. And, and think not peace and tranquility over a, a morning quiet time with a cup of coffee. What we need to do is spread this verse out over a war-torn wasteland where everything you love most in the world is rubble the smoke still rising from the burning of all your hopes and dreams. And you, you hang that over your image of 9-11, of a smoldering wasteland, okay? Hang this verse as a banner above it. And what you get from this verse, friends, is not someone telling you it's not as bad as it looks. That's not what the verse says. What, you're, what you get from this verse is someone telling you that even though what goes away never comes back, even though the pain of loss is every bit as bad as you think it is and sometimes worse, there is something offered to you that doesn't end. There is something that is actually brand new every morning for you. And even when the wasteland of your life got to where it is because of you, this same God this very morning offers you mercy. And the wasteland that we stare at clear-eyed without shrinking back only prepares us for joy with the one hope that suffering people can ever cling to. The Lord is my portion, verse 24. It says, my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Father, we pray that you would help us through this study to be more honest and open with each other about our pain and to do a better job of bearing witness to it and to do away once and for all with cheap comforts that pretend like the good gifts of life are anything less than the precious gifts they are, or the pain of losing them is anything less than the devastation that it is, but who point beyond and through the pain for a God whose mercies are new. We pray that you would help us to learn what we need to from this book and not shrink back in Jesus' name. Amen.